So hear now the very Word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 12th chapter, verses 8 and 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. May the Lord bless this reading of His Word to our understanding. May no one leave this morning not completely clear on what Jesus just said. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, these are biting words. They're strong words, but they're also words of warning. They're words of reality. And and I pray that we will indeed see this reality today, that no one will simply allow their minds to wander, that they will recognize the importance of these words, and that everyone will consider the two questions that are pretty much asked by them, and that um, before the day is out, we'll have a firm understanding of what it means to confess Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If I were to ask you, what was the most important event of your life, past, present, and future, bar none, everything considered, what is the most important event of your life? Well, some of you might say the day I was born. Some might say the day I die. Some might say the day I was married or the day that I had my first child. There's a million different answers to that particular question, but let me complicate it just a wee bit before we get going. I like to do that, you know, complicate things. <laughs> let me ask you another quest- question very similar to it. However, the caveat here is that the answer cannot be the same. It has to be a different answer. What, all things considered, is the most crucial instant in your existence? If you had to say, what was the most crucial thing? What is the most crucial instant in your existence? Now, notice I didn't say event. I said instant. And notice I didn't say life. I said existence. Well, we're going to get the answer to the first question in our first verse this morning. And we're going to get the answer to the second one in the second verse. But let me just go ahead and tell you, regardless if you realize it, regardless of whether you agree with it or not, the most significant event that will ever occur in your life is whether or not you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is the most important, significant event in your life. But it pales next to the most crucial instant in your existence. And that is, as you stand before the judgment seat of God and find yourself condemned whether or not Jesus will confess you. That is the most significant instant because that will determine your eternity. Will Jesus step forward and acknowledge a condemned sinner when you stand before a holy God? Now, Luke, in this part of his gospel, is pretty much... Um, uh, he's been kind of focusing on three themes as we have made our way through this. We sort of started out with the theme of, uh, of sanctification through the means of grace and how significant that was and how important it was, not only for the glory of God, not only for the strength of the kingdom, but also because the kingdom needs strong, obedient, disciplined, battle-ready saints to fight the spiritual war that occurs, and that's the second theme, when Jesus enters space and time, when the truth of God, the light enters the darkness. We talked about it as the cosmic initiative as Jesus comes with a twofold objective really to one, destroy the darkness, not to make an alliance with it, and two, to seek and save the life, the lost, to find his bride and redeem them and purify them and set the captives free. Um, the, the third of the themes we've sort of just been bringing out recently, but it's been interwoven all through that, because as the light of truth comes into this world, well, we know that the darkness of falsehood 
fights back. And we've talked about the, the diabolical countermeasures of Satan and his demons, but also of the human agents of evil who stand against Jesus. In fact, at this particular moment in the story are conspiring to destroy him. And Jesus says to his disciples, now, do not fear the ones who can destroy the, bi- bi- the, the body, but do be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, he's talking about hypocrisy there, and the particular kind of hypocrisy that he's talking about is the hypocrisy of externalized, institutionalized, formalized religion. It's like leaven in a lump of dough. You've got to be careful. If it gets in, it will permeate all the way through not only your faith, but also the church. But now I want to talk about a fourth theme that has come up, especially in the last couple of weeks. And that theme is the fact that there is, or the fact of, a final judgment, that this life is not all there is, and that there will be a time of recompense, of reckoning as we stand before the judgment seat of God. We saw it when he was warning his disciples about hypocrisy. He said, listen, that's ridiculous because everything that you think you have said in private is going to be shouted from the housetops. Everything that you think is covered is going to be revealed. Now, not only was he talking about the things that go on now, but he was also talking about the, the, the final judgment, the things in the not yet as we stand before God at the end of this life. But then last week, boy, we really sort of went into it because Jesus turns to his disciples once again and says, don't fear those who are plotting right now to kill me and eventually will plot to kill you because the only thing they can kill is your body. They can't do anything to you after that. Fear the one. Fear God who can send both body and soul to hell. And so we established three primary truths there last week, two of them explicit, one of them implicit. Fear God, fear hell, and run to Jesus because he's the only one who can save you from the one and reconcile you to the other. So those four themes actually are going to enter into our discussion this morning, especially those last two. Now, our text for this morning is somewhat of a proverb. Jesus is making a proverbial statement, but it is also a very serious warning, and we'll see that as we make it through. But this is not the first time that Jesus has said these words in Luke. You may remember back in the ninth chapter, he put it this way. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So in other words, he's already made a statement of, if you're ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed of you then. But when he made that statement back in the ninth chapter, he was talking more in a, a, a discipleship mode. Remember, he had just said, if you, anyone who would be my disciple and follow me must deny themselves daily, pick up their cross and follow me. So he was talking about discipleship back then. But now in this particular uh, statement, this proverb, he is without a doubt, talking about a final judgment, a, a, a reconciling of a life lived and standing before God in, in that judgment. So we'll bring that out as we go along. So let's take a look at the, at the text. Uh, we have two verses. Um, as I said, the first one is going to answer our first question, what's the most uh, important, significant event of your life? And the second one will answer the second one. So let's take a look at that first one. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that modified truth formula, I tell you. It's kind of like when he would say, verily, verily, I say unto you, and we know that that was the word, amen. Well, that's kind of a, this is kind of a modified version of that. But it sort of takes a different uh, 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 um, uh, effect here in this context. Because Jesus is going to use this phrase three times within just a few verses. And in those same verses, he has warned his disciples twice. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and I warn you who you should fear. So this, I tell you, takes on a little bit of a stronger meaning here, a, a, a warning that you really need to pay attention to these words. Sometimes I... 
you, you, you have to know this, the true confession. Sometimes I feel like physicalizing these words. I feel like coming out and grabbing you by the shoulders and shaking you and getting into your face and saying, what on earth can be more important than this? What are you thinking about? What are you daydreaming about? Why are you in the doldrums? Do you not realize that there is an eternity and your eternity depends on your answer to these questions? I tell you, it's an important thing for us to wake up and listen. Secondly, you notice that he says, I tell you my, I'm sorry, I tell you everyone who acknowledges me. Notice the universality of that word, everyone. Now, it sort of means two things in this context. On the one hand, everyone who acknowledges me. That means, brothers and sisters, that if you acknowledge Christ in the way that we're going to establish it today, there's no one going to be left behind. There is no one who is not going to be included in the blessing that Jesus gives us at the end of this verse. So it's very comforting to believers, but at the same time, Jesus is going to divide the world into exactly two groups. This, everyone, kind of gives us the whole scope. And then in the next chapter, he's going to say, but to the one. And and he really personalizes it. But basically, what he's going to say is that there are exactly two kinds of people in this world. I divide the entire world according to those who will acknowledge me before men and those who will not. And the circumstances, the consequences of those are vastly, vastly different. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men. Now, I'm trying to make the point here this morning that um, your eternity will depend on this event, that this is the most important event of your life, of the time that you are living. So therefore, I think it might just be worthwhile to describe what we mean by acknowledge. Um, Because if it's that important, you need to understand in no vague terms exactly what it means. Well, the word itself um, means of one mind. It means to to have like-mindedness. It means basically to agree or to profess the same thing, to be on the same page, to be on the same wavelength, to have your mind following in the same pattern as someone else. That's basically what the word means. Now, you'll notice if you've got the New American Standard that sometimes this word is also uh, translated as confess. And so there's a, there's a public sense to this. There's a, a sense that there's a public profession of what your like-mindedness is. And there's even the further, further connotation that this would be a confession or profession of allegiance or fidelity. This is something that you believe and that you acknowledge. I kind of like the way that um, John MacArthur states this in, in his commentary. He says, basically what the word means is to be like-minded with God the Father concerning His Son. In other words, when God at the baptism of Jesus Christ comes down and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and at the transfiguration He adds, listen to Him. God understands and has an idea of His Son. It's written down for us in this book, all the way through it. It tells us what God thinks about His Son, Jesus. To confess Jesus, to acknowledge Him before men, is to agree with God on exactly who Jesus actually is. And if you think about that, that is pretty profound. Uh, It's it's a far deeper kind of confession. It it, it is not shallow. It is not a cold recitation of some words that you think might save you or think might identify you with one or the other. It is a conviction that comes from the very heart, the fiber of your existence, that you agree in all ways with what God says about His Son. What the Bible tells us about Jesus. I like to read an old Scottish pastor from time to time. His name is Alexander McLaren. And he said that the important part of this particular word is that it doesn't mean just to acknowledge Christ with lips. It means to acknowledge him with life. You acknowledge him. You confess him with both your lips and your life. There is a consistency between what you say and what you do. So that is going to be of the greatest significance. But the problem that we have 
I think, as Christians, is that when we try to describe what it means to acknowledge Christ, we sort of lapse into Christianese, don't we? You know, kind of the the terms that we use. For instance, we might say, well, it means to accept Christ as your Savior. Well, it does, but that's such a general term. It means to have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, yes, it does, but again, that can mean different things to different people. It means to believe in the gospel and accept it as truth. Well, yes, again, those are all really very important things to you because you've been through that conversion in your heart and you know what it means to accept Jesus, but that's not good enough. Now, we need to get even more defined because after all, When we talk about accepting Jesus as our Savior, well, to a whole bunch of people, that means walking down the aisle when you're a kid and reciting a prayer and not having a life that reflects it in any way, form, or fashion. We say that I have faith in Jesus. Yeah, but what kind of faith? An intellectual faith, a temporary faith, a a faith that is actually a saving faith or a faith that is simply for the moment. Sometimes we say, no, I believe in the gospel. Well, which gospel do you believe in? The social gospel, the liberation gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. What kind of gospel do you believe in? So you see, those are vague terms. We've got to get a little bit more specific about it. When we say that we believe in Jesus even, I mean, Jesus' name has been drugged through the mud. It doesn't necessarily mean what God means about his son. It means a great teacher. It means my buddy, my pal, my chum, somebody who winks at my sins and is going to take me to heaven no matter what kind of life I live. So we need to define these. No better way to define what God feels about his son than to go to his word and let his word reveal for us exactly what he thinks. Now, this is the tip of the iceberg, folks. We would be here for a month, more than a month, to try to read all that the Bible says about Jesus because it's all about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. The whole book tells us about Jesus. But let me share some of these these passages just to give us an idea of what it means to confess Jesus and the kind of confession and the kind of Jesus that we're actually confessing. It means that we confess and believe that he is the Messiah that the prophets talked about of old. Prophets like Isaiah who said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Old Testament prophets gave us over 400 fulfilled prophecies on the person and life of Jesus Christ. (laughs) You know what the mathematical possibilities of that are? Just uh, beyond the possibility, beyond the, the point of possibility. He is actually the one the angels profess to us. I mean, Jesus talks about, I'm going to profess you before the angels in heaven. Well, the angels came and professed Jesus to us. Remember, he, the, the angel was standing before the shepherds in the night that Jesus was born and said unto you, is born this night in the city of David, a what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angels know how to confess and profess Jesus before men. We just need to know how to do the same thing. If we're going to confess Jesus, we need to recognize that he is God in the flesh. He is not a creature. He is not a metaphor. He was never created. As John tells us, he was in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. He came to this earth with a mission. He lived a perfect life so that he could achieve all righteousness and be the perfect sacrifice for me and to impute his righteousness to me. Hebrews puts it this way, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. When John the Baptist was hesitating to To baptize Jesus, Jesus said, let it be so for now. To do what? To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus lived a perfect life, 
while he was here. When he went to the cross, he became a voluntary, sacrificial, substitutionary atonement. The very thing that the so-called deconstructionists right now are trying to tell you makes God a, a child abuser is the very central fact of who Jesus is. John the Baptist took one look at him and said what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah, 700 years earlier in that, talking about Jesus said, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Towards that end, Jesus went to the cross He suffered the wrath of God, not for his own sin, but for our sins. And when he had completed that, he said, it is finished. And John says, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He died on the cross and they took his dead body off of the cross and they put it in a tomb belonging to a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. He was a dead body in that tomb, and yet, so that he could fulfill a psalm, as, as Peter said in his great Pentecost sermon, he saw no corruption. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And then on the third day, he did not remain in that tomb, but he was resurrected bodily in reality. A man once again who had been dead walked around on the earth. And then the 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 profession the confession of that once again came from the angels as the women showed up at the tomb at dawn on Easter Sunday morning with spices to anoint a dead body. You remember what those two angels said to him? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Okay, that's the Jesus Christ that we um, believe in. He was ascended to heaven after 40 days and he was coronated as king and kings and lord of lords. Once again, almost 400 years earlier, Daniel saw this in his vision. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Matthew tells us that when Jesus returns and he will come back to this fallen silent planet when he does that it will be not as the son of a poor carpenter from Nazareth but as king of kings and lord of lords in power and glory. Matthew says this, Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. There will come a day, brothers and sisters, when every single tongue confesses Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul says to the Philippians, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory Amen. of God the Father. Amen. That's just a smattering of what God thinks about his Son. That's just a little bit about what we confess when we are like-minded with God about Jesus. All that scripture reveals us about Jesus is what we confess. And we believe this not just in a nominal or a surface way, to believe it from the very fiber of your existence, to accept it as truth to the point that it changes your life. It governs the way that you live this world to publicly profess Jesus as the resurrected Lord, the Son of the living God. 
wrapped up in that, brothers and sisters, going back to that ninth chapter of, of Luke when Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. He just got through saying that if you are my disciple, you will deny self and you will follow me. If you confess Jesus, you deny self. If you deny Jesus, you confess self. And almost identical to that, what we talked about last week is those who fear God will confess Christ. Those who do not fear God but fear the world will deny Christ. They all go together. So therefore, we confess Jesus both with our lips and our life. I'm going to give you an opportunity a little bit later on to do just that. Well, back to our text. And there we see that Jesus goes on and identifies himself by his favorite title, which is Son of Man. Now, most of you already know that doesn't refer to Jesus' humanity and Son of God refers to his, his divinity. In fact, the Son of Man speaks of Jesus in his cosmic sense, in Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the one who left heaven, took on the attributes of a human and came here and walked amongst us and died and was resurrected and has gone back to heaven and rules as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the God-man. He's the Lion of Judah and he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what is meant by the Son of Man. It places him right in the presence of the holy angels when he goes on to say, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before the angels of God. Now, I have to admit, the first time I read that, I kind of was perplexed. Actually, not the first time I read it, but even when I was preparing this message, I, you know, I started thinking to myself, wait a minute. When Matthew says this, and it's back in Galilee, but when, you know, Jesus said this back in Galilee, he says it a little different. Jesus says, I will also acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. And it doesn't seem like that that's the more important part, isn't it? To acknowledge before the Father. Why did Luke, or why did Jesus here at this time say, before the angels of God? Well, I missed the point, and I hope that I can explain it to you, because, you see, the angels attend God. They're, they're, they're there. And so when, when Jesus says, I will acknowledge you before the angel of God, what he is doing is he's establishing a scene. He's establishing an event, and the event that he is establishing is the final judgment. You see, Jesus could go talk to his father and, and say, now, of course, he doesn't do that. That's not the way it works. But he could actually go and profess you before his father, and it would just be his father. But that's not the way it is. And that's not the scene that, that Jesus wants you to see now. He wants you to see this in a forensic sense. He wants you to see it exactly as Daniel saw it all those years ago when he said, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. This is the Father. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. This is what I want you to hear. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. This is exactly what Jesus was referring to. The book of Revelation kind of describes that for us, picking up the exact same language around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands. That is a Hebraism that means an innumerable throng. So in other words, what Jesus has done by saying that I will acknowledge you before the angels of God, he has placed us in the final judgment. He has placed us at a time when the angels will be present and there will be a time of judgment. Matthew looks at it this way when he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will gather all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Last week I read from the 14th chapter of Revelation, which is probably one of the most chilling of the scenes that we get of this final judgment. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, 
He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So basically what Jesus is saying, you deny me before man. You, you confess me before men. We're still on the positive part. You confess me before men, and I will confess you at the final judgment. Yes. I will claim you. I will own you. I will come to your aid at the final judgment at that instant that you need it the most. That crucial instance. We are talking about the great white throne, brothers and sisters, as Revelation says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. For believers, this is a glorious day. For believers, this is the day that Jesus comes up and says, I take this condemned sinner and there's the lake of fire. I save them because I know them. Well done, good and faithful uh, servant. Enter into the blessing of your Lord. What could be more glorious? What could be a, a more important event or important second instant than that one right there? But it's hard to express how different the other side is. Jesus goes on and says, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. There are words in Scripture that are crucial, important words, and sometimes they're the smallest, seemingly insignificant ones. That little three-letter word, but, two letters in the Greek, is the hinge upon which eternity swings. You are either in one group or the other as an adversative. There is no middle ground. There, there's a pretty sad joke. It's not really a joke anymore. It's been worn out so much that um, pre- preachers often said, I must admit it, I've used it several times myself. Um, but there are basically two kinds of people in the world. Those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those who don't. But the reason I say that is because I want you to know that Jesus was one of those who divided the world into two kinds of people. Exactly. He divided them into the sheep and the goats. He divided them into believers and non-believers. He divided them into the elect and the non-elect. He divided them into those who had the oil for their lamps and those who didn't. He divided them into those who had the proper wedding clothes and to those who didn't and were thrown out into the darkness where there is weeping of gnashing teeth. Jesus divided the world into precisely two groups of people. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's no demilitarized zone between these two forces. There is a razor-sharp line that is spiritually defined and infinitely thin. You are either on one side or the other. There's no nominal Christianity. And the great event that will make the difference is when you stand condemned before God, will Jesus acknowledge you? That's what he's saying right now. Now the word deny also, very important. If our eternity depends on whether we acknowledge or deny Christ, we need to know what these words mean. The word deny simply means to disclaim association with a person or an event, to repudiate, to disown. So how do people deny Christ? How, how easy is it to deny Christ? Well, I'm going to go back to what that old Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren, said. We need to profess him in lips and life. And so we can deny him in both lips and life. And I also say that we can deny him both actively and passively. So first, to deny Jesus actively with lips, that's a pretty simple one. If you deny Jesus verbally, if you articulate it, if you say, I I don't believe in him, it's a bunch of Hebrew myths and I have no reason to believe in some man that lived 2,000 years ago, well, you have actively denied him with lips. Probably the most famous of those, biblically, is Peter. When he actually called down curses upon himself and he says, I don't know the man, which is an important point. That's not the unforgivable sin. 
to deny Christ. If it was, I wouldn't be here. Nor would Peter, because I did it for most of my adult life. And so therefore, that's not the unforgivable sin. And by the way, that's the very next verse. We'll get to that next week. The one that is unforgivable. But to deny Christ with lips, first of all, if that doesn't change, if there's no difference, if you never actually confess Him, well, then that is what it means to deny Him eschatologically, terminally with your life. But you can also deny Jesus um, passively with lips. In, In other words, you don't have to articulate that you don't believe in Jesus to deny him with lips. In other words, by not confessing him with your lips, you deny him. You see, the problem that we have, brothers and sisters, is this. We're not neutral. We're not born tabula rasa, as Pelagius said, you know, where we, we have this blank slate and the events of our lives are, are what's going to determine whether we're good people or bad people. We are born in sin. We're conceived in sin. Now, for every single one of us, that's a moot point. If you want to argue it, you can argue original sin with me, but you can't argue yours. Because every single one of us has sinned against God. Every single one of us needs a Savior. Every single one of us needs to be redeemed and brought into the light. And so therefore, if you remain silent about Jesus your entire life and you don't care about Him, you don't have a word to say, you deny Him by not confessing Him. Amen. People also deny Jesus with their life. And life's changed. And I'm looking at a whole bunch of them. That have changed. Mine as well. Your life can change. But again, eschatologically, terminally, you leave this world. When you live a life of debauchery, if if you don't change, just the very way you live your life, if it's a life filled with wickedness, if it's prostitution and drugs and drinking and, and lying and stealing and even murdering, all of those things, you're living a life that by the very nature of your life denies Jesus. But there's also the ability to deny Jesus by not living a life that, 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 that confesses him. Every Sunday morning, Kay and I get in our car, we drive through our neighborhood on the way to church, and we say all of our neighbors, we're the only people that go to church in our neighborhood. Everybody else is out washing their car, walking their dogs, getting their boats ready to go out and uh, mowing their grass and, you know, getting ready for the day. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't go to church on Sunday, you're going to hell. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying your lifestyle does not confess or profess Jesus. It, it, it doesn't tell people that I'm redeemed, I'm a, I'm a new creation in Christ, that my life has changed. That's why, that's why believers have to be so careful who we emulate. Now, again, you, you don't have to deny Christ actively to deny him. You deny him passively. Mm-hmm. And dear brothers and sisters, that brings us to the most chilling scene. When Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the angels of God. When the time comes... And the final judgment is, and you know something, you can, here goes the shaking again, you can wish it away, but you can't believe scripture and wish it away at the same time. There will be a day of judgment. All of us will stand before the white throne of God. And I, I could talk for a month and I could never give you words that are so chilling as the ones that Jesus gave at the very end of his Sermon on the Mount. When he said this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. That is the most crucial instant of your existence. When you stand condemned, will Jesus say about you, when he looks into your eyes, will he say, I never knew you? Or will he say, this one is mine? I think about that day quite a bit, actually. I kind of imagine or try to imagine what it would look like Um, I can't, 
None of us can. But I, I do have a picture in my mind that I'll share with you. When I think about standing before the great white throne of God, I'm alone. I'm by myself. I don't have an attorney. My wife is not there, although I wish she was. My family is not there. My friends aren't there. My church isn't there. I'm by myself. And I stand in the presence of an unapproachable light. A light that is so bright that it bleaches all the colors out of my eyes. So I know that there are hundreds of thousands of millions, an innumerable throng that is gathered there, but I can't see any of them. The only one I can see is me. And the light has a strange effect on me. Rather than bleaching me out, it tends to accentuate every single line, every single feature, every single pore in my body because I don't belong there. I am different from the light. And as we look at it in the distance, it looks like the image of a man. But as we get closer, we recognize this isn't a good man. It's not a handsome man. It's not even a decent man. It's a horribly twisted and deformed deformed aberration of a man. It is me, the way that I look in the absolute holiness of God. And in my hands is a book, huge gigantic book one of those old tomes you know with thick leather covering and and one of those locks that wrap around it that would lock the 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 book shut but at this time it's opened and i'm told to turn to the front page the first page in it and begin to read every event in my life And as I read through those events, some of them are good, and I sigh every time I read something that's good, but most of them range from bad to treacherous. And as I read those events, slowly but surely, I start to feel a weight, even as pilgrims, Christians, weight that he felt. But this is much harder and stronger. I feel like it's going to actually press me through the ground and squish me because the weight of my sin just gets getting harder and harder to bear as one line after another. This book is not printed. It is not written in the glorious script of heaven. This is a a book written in my own handwriting. I wrote this book. Every single event in there is something that I either thought, did, said, did or not did in my life. After what seems like an eternity, I finally finish it. There's no question in anybody's mind there. Revelation tells me the lake of fire is right there. There's no question about whether I'm condemned or not. I am absolutely, totally condemned. But... That is when the most important event of my life shows up. Because somewhere in that book, there was one line that said, I confessed Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I deny myself and I give myself wholly to Him. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears out of the light. Strangely, one with the light, but also distinguishable. And he walks over to me, and he takes that book out of my hand. And he turns to his father, and he said, This one confessed me before men. I confess him before you. And he takes that book, and he goes right back to the beginning of it. And he starts to read right through it once again. Now, sometimes I said some of them are good, and that goes as my credit in the treasury of heaven. But for the most part, every line needs to be crossed out. And he has this big pen, this big feathered quill that he's using. And he takes this, and each one of those, he marks through it. And at first, I think he's got red ink, but then I find it's not red ink. It's his blood that marks through each and every transgression that I have done. And then when he's done and he's finished, he takes that book and he throws it into the lake of fire because there is no need for it anymore. I am redeemed. That is the most crucial instant in my existence when Jesus steps forward and says, this one is mine. That's how important this is, brothers and sisters. That's how important it is that you confess Jesus before men. Amen. So I'm going to do something different. 
This is a day for different things. In your bulletin was an insert right in the very middle of it. It's called a Christological Confession. I'd like for us to stand if you feel like standing. You can sit if you feel like sitting. But I want to give you the opportunity to confess Christ before me. Now listen to me for just one second. Even if this is not your heart, even if this is not your very essence of your soul, I want you to read it anyway. And the reason that I want you to read it anyway is because I want you to know what you are currently denying and what will condemn you to an eternity in hell. I want you to know what it means to confess Jesus. And once again, I, I, th- this is just a smattering. It is, it's just a, a tip of an iceberg. But at least it will give us the indication of what it means to acknowledge Jesus as Christ. So if you want to stand, please stand with me as we read this together. I'll start it out the way that I do when we read the, attorney, uh, the attorneys, the Apostles' Creed together. Christian, what do you believe? I confess and believe that Christ is the long-awaited Messiah so clearly foreseen by the prophets of the Old Testament. I confess and believe that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God and was born of a virgin. I confess and believe that Christ came as one person with two distinct natures, both holy God and holy man. I confess and believe that Christ is the Logos. He is the Emmanuel. He is God with us. I confess and believe that Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. I confess and believe that as a man Christ was tempted just as I am tempted, and yet that He never sinned, living a life of perfect righteousness." I confess and believe that Christ voluntarily went to the cross as a sacrificial, substitutionary atonement for my sins. I confess and believe that God in His wrath against my sin punished Christ eternally while on that cross, that by His stripes I am healed." I confess and believe that when Christ said it is finished, payment for every one of my sins was complete. I confess and believe that because of this sacrifice and the infinite grace of God, my sins are forgiven and I am reconciled with God. I confess and believe that Christ's human body died on that cross was placed in a tomb where he never saw corruption. I confess and believe that on the third day, Christ was resurrected from that grave, coming forth a living, glorified man to show his victory over sin, death, and hell. I confess and believe that after revealing himself to his disciples and hundreds of others, Christ ascended on the clouds of heaven and took his place at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I confess and believe Christ's dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I confess and believe Christ is there even now as my mediator, my intercessor, my shepherd, my brother, my savior, my salvation, my sanctification, and my king. I confess and believe Christ has prepared a place for me so that where he is, there I might be also. I confess and believe Christ will come again to this silent planet in power, glory, and judgment with his mighty angels. I confess and believe that at that time every knee will bow and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. I confess and believe I will spend an eternity with Christ, reconciled to God, praising Him before His throne forever and ever. I confess and believe that when the day of judgment comes, Christ will confess me before His Father and the holy angels as I have confessed Him before men. I confess that I love Jesus the Christ with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. And to the best of my ability, will deny myself to serve Him throughout this life and the life to come. I confess and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. May His name ever be praised. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. That is what Jesus had in mind when he said, if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before the angels of God. It is the deepest, most sincere prayer of my heart that all those who read that confession or whoever may read that confession will stand by it from the very depths of their souls. And when that most crucial instant comes, that Christological confession, that you will be ushered into the glory and to the blessing and to the praise of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you've heard our confession, and we know that you are the one who makes that possible. You are the one that changes our hearts. Dear Lord, may, may, may those words ring so true to us that they become so real to us that they're not just things we say with our lips, but they're things we say with our lives. Mm-hmm. I just pray that as a church, as a body, as individual Christians, that you would use this confession, the other confessions that have been written and, and, and the, the testimony and witness of Scripture to reveal to us that if we are going to be like-minded with you when we confess Christ, it needs to be all of what Scripture says, that we would give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.